Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. This week, we had originally planned on speaking with University of Minnesota Professor of Economics Timothy Kehoe about the state of the economy and the impact of trade wars. That interview will take place on an episode in early December. We apologize for the scheduling change. This week, a look at so-called fake news. Much of this misinformation is spread via social media. While we generally assume that we can separate fact from fiction, psychological research suggests otherwise. This week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota English Department Chair and Professor Andrew Elfenbein discusses his new book titled The Gist of Reading and how written content can distort our perception of reality. Professor Elfenbein, welcome to Dialogue Minnesota. Thank you. It's great to be here. Why did you become interested in researching how we process what we read? I became interested because traditionally, reading was the weak link in literary criticism. When literary criticism became an academic discipline uh, and consolidated itself in the 30s and 40s, one move that it made was to separate itself from the kind of criticism appearing in newspapers, in magazines, in popular venues. Those journals tended to focus on the personal feelings of the people who had read the book, whether they liked it, didn't like it, how the book made them feel. Academic critics responded by pushing the reader into the background and pushing into the foreground close attention to the text. So for them, the primary value was laser-like focus on textual detail. This changed in the 1970s with the emergence of what we call reader-response criticism, most closely associated with Stanley Fish. And Fish, in a series of articles and books, foregrounded his reading of literature as an individual reader. As it turns out, Fish, as an individual reader, reads very well and very closely and very much like an academic critic. So we got the reader's responses of one particular reader, Stanley Fish, but it was hard to tell if those responses were particularly typical of anybody other than Stanley Fish. Another strand that emerged more recently, I think in part in connection with the growth of databases that are now searchable, is an interest in historical readers. So people had gone into the archives and found that a particular reader located in a particular place for a particular span of years said X, Y, and Z about what he or she read. And that is interesting, but there was this accumulation of data and not much vocabulary or conceptual framework for making sense of what these readers were doing. So I needed to find something outside of my discipline to make sense of reading. And I was looking through the course catalog and discovered that there was a class on reading comprehension being taught, not surprisingly, in the School of Education. And I 
wrote to the professor and asked if he would mind if I audited the class. And the professor very generously invited me to attend the class. This was Paul Vandenbroek, who I discovered was a major figure in reading comprehension, internationally well-known. He taught a wonderful class, which introduced me to a body of literature that I had not known at all, primarily in psychology. I, had all, I was already interested in psycholinguistics, but this was an aspect of psycholinguistics that was entirely new to me, and I was hooked. Were many of your colleagues surprised that you as an English literature scholar were teaming up with people in a different discipline? My colleagues may have been surprised at the particular direction I chose for my interdisciplinarity, but the fact that I had reached out to a different branch of study was let's say, not entirely unusual because many of my colleagues have similar careers reaching out to different areas of study and interest. Why did you choose the title, The Gist of Reading? I chose the title, The Gist of Reading, because I wanted to foreground the concept of gist. And in doing so, I was setting myself against what I spoke about earlier, the academic privileging of the text. I instead, by focusing on gist, turn my attention to how we remember what we read. One of the most interesting challenges for a psychological account of reading is how can we say that we understand what we read when by the time we finish a moderate-sized paragraph, we'll have forgotten almost every word in that paragraph? That's a real challenge because it would seem like how much you remember would be a very important indicator of how well you understood what you've read. But in reading, you will forget almost every word and your ability to reproduce verbatim any sentence of what you've read will be almost nil. Moreover, what you will remember will include much more than just the words on the page. You will have brought your own background knowledge to bear on what you have read. You will have made inferences that are not explicitly stated in the text, but will become part of your memory. So, what we remember is not everything in detail in the text. What we remember is a simplified, abstracted version supplemented by details from our own memory. And that I'm calling gist. And I'm foregrounding that, as I said, to bring attention to an important aspect of how people experience literature that has not had much attention at all from traditional literary criticism. Tell us how literature has been viewed historically as an instrument to influence readers, both for better and for worse. Once upon a time, not many people read. More people than you might expect could sign their names, but not that many people could read long, complex works. And even if they could, books were very, very expensive, far beyond the reach of most people. A given household would be lucky to possess a single copy of the Bible, and that might be the only book. What began to change slowly 
beginning in the early modern period and then accelerating in the 18th century was access to books. More printers, more libraries, more booksellers. The price of books didn't fall as soon as you might have think it did, but there were more books to go around. The books don't really become cheap until the 20th century with the paperback revolution. But there are more books around. And suddenly, reading is no longer the exclusive province of a small privileged group. It becomes increasingly available to everybody. And as soon as that happens, people begin to worry. What does this mean that people are beginning to read and not just read the Bible, but read fiction, things that aren't true? What will happen? Will they believe what they read? There's some evidence that at least some of the early readers of Jonathan Swift's fantasy, Gulliver's Travels, believed that they could find those countries on the map, that they were real. In popular discourse, a lot of these fears of fiction centered somewhat misogynistically on women readers, that women would read romances about heroes taking them off for romantic escapades in the sunset, and this would leave them unsuited to good bourgeois existence as wives and mothers because they might actually want to have a life that satisfied them or made them happy. And this was horrifying. So there's a great deal of policing of women readers in terms of educational tracts and conduct books that list appropriate behavior for young women. And this anti-reading, anti-novel literature continued throughout the 18th, 19th, and even early 20th century. I think in the 21st century where you can find this similar discourse of fear of certain forms of entertainment is now around violent video games and tends to be associated especially with children, although we all know that plenty of adults are playing those video games, especially the most violent ones. But in terms of popular rhetoric, the focus is typically children and fear about what this form of entertainment may do. While most of us would likely accept that reading a work of fiction or nonfiction might influence our worldview, You've uncovered research indicating that what we read today may cause us to question our long-standing beliefs in a much more extreme manner. Why does this happen? In my book, I talk about one particularly interesting strand of research in contemporary psychological work on reading. In part with the rise of quote-unquote fake news, psychologists have been interested in what the effects of reading inaccurate information can be. In what's become a classic experiment, even though it's not that old, psychologists gave readers fictional stories in which there were embedded false facts. Facts that characters in the story mentioned as if they were true, but were in fact not. And these were very specific facts, like a character claiming that the Indian Ocean is the largest of the world's oceans, when it is in fact the Pacific. 
What was especially interesting was two weeks before reading, before participants read these stories, psychologists had quizzed readers on their knowledge of these facts. Then two weeks later, readers read these stories that contained the false facts, and then after reading these stories, were quizzed again. And to the psychologist's surprise, many facts that readers had known correctly before reading these stories, after reading the stories, they were more likely to go with the incorrect version that had been in the story. So they had learned inaccurate information from fiction. And when psychologists get an effect like this, they try to see under what circumstances will it go away. So, for example, before giving the stories with the inaccurate information to readers, they gave them warnings and said, this story contains inaccurate information. And they discovered that this had no effect whatsoever on readers. <laughs> I see you're, you're smiling. It's incredible. Yes, mm -hmm. it is incredible on the degree to which readers were still trapped by the inaccurate information. So what would cause that? Why wouldn't you question this new uh, factual information that contradicts what you've known for a long time? People in general confuse truth with ease of processing. If something is easy to understand, in general, this doesn't mean in every single case, every single time, but on the average, people will believe that it is true. This is not just about content. There's been a lot of work with how something looks on a page if the type is harder to read. It's less likely for people to believe that a message is true than if it is easier to read. So after reading those inaccurate facts, they are an easily accessed long-term memory because the technical definition of a short-term memory is very, very, very short. So it's easy to remember the inaccurate version because you've just read it. Are some people more susceptible to this phenomenon than others? Does it relate at all to level of education? Uh, if you're a dogmatic person, are you less likely to believe something that contradicts your current beliefs? So one of the wonderful things about research design is that samples are randomized. So a good science experiment works with participants from all kinds of backgrounds. And this is typically psychologists are going to work with 18 to 21-year-olds because that's an easy group. What psychologists look for is have the same results been found in different labs, in different places in the country. And for the findings I've described, that has indeed been found. So in general, there is support that this is a process that happens across a variety of different readers. But to your question, if readers are engaging materials about which they have particularly strong political or religious beliefs, such as abortion or climate change or euthanasia, it's much less likely 
that they will change because they have very strong belief systems that are rooting their beliefs. The facts that were presented in the stories I've described, such as the identity of the world's largest ocean, are in general not facts to which people have long, passionate, emotional commitments. And therefore, those are the kinds of facts that might be more susceptible to misinformation effects. We're living in an era of a bitter partisan divide and what some have called tribalism. The flow of false and misleading information that helps drive this partisanship is often channeled through social media. Readers are increasingly turning to non-traditional sources for their news. The so-called mainstream media is certainly not perfect, but it does strive to be at least nominally objective in its reporting. How can we combat so-called fake news from these non-traditional sources? I think that's a great question. One very valuable skill is encouraging readers to pay attention to the source of the information and to learn about the source of the information they are getting. In general, there's an interesting phenomenon in memory called source amnesia. And what this means is it is typical not to remember the source of basic world knowledge. You probably don't remember the source that taught you that Paris was the capital of France because you usually have no need to remember that source, so you don't, and you encounter that fact in many, many different places. So the very first time you learned it doesn't matter that much. Whereas you probably do remember learning to ride a bike for the first time because that was special and had great autobiographical significance for you, potentially. Now, we, in relation to the rise of the plethora of media sources, are challenged with countering source amnesia, encouraging readers to pay close attention to the sources of their information. Very often, websites are quite overt about their biases and are willing to say, this is our background, this is where we're coming from, we support values X, Y, and Z. These are important to us. So we're asking readers to notice that source and critically evaluate information in relation to that source. This is becoming an increasing emphasis in K through 12 education, as well as something that we're emphasizing at the college level when students are writing research papers to not just use anything that comes up in a Google search, but to use Google, Google is terrific, it's wonderful, but then to look at where that information is coming from, what kind of background is provided, has it been peer-reviewed, what kind of sources are cited for this information, and if they follow up those sources, what will they find, how reliable is this information. So. What we are hoping is that something that for a long time was not second nature, paying attention to sources, can become an increasing part of the routine that 
readers and listeners go through when they are accessing information. You found studies that show readers find some news sources more credible than others. These presumably credible sources are more likely to be believed even when the information they present is false or inaccurate. Does this finding place an even greater responsibility on trusted mainstream media to get the facts right? Absolutely. One interesting effect of the proliferation of loudly explicitly biased sources of information has been the increasing value associated with the traditional aims of mainstream media, trying to present stories in as factually truthful a manner as possible and valuing and taking seriously processes of making sure that any fact that's printed has multiple sources of verification. And I think that at a time when publishing a paper is harder than ever, the value of traditional journalistic aims has become more admired than ever because we have seen so many stories attain wide circulation that have no basis in fact whatsoever that we can no longer take for granted that everything that you read is true. Everyone always knew that everything they read wasn't true, but now it's so easy to access things that aren't true and so many people are willing to believe them that I think there's increasing respect for the work that goes into creating news that can be believed. As a literary scholar, does it concern you that many readers of all political and ideological stripes are tending to consume content that comports with their existing views? Do we need to take in a variety of opinions that may challenge what we believe and potentially cause us some discomfort? This is a great question. And again, goes back to an issue I talked about earlier, ease of processing. It's at some level easier to read material that, as you suggested, comports with what you already believe. It's much more difficult, challenging, and time-consuming to read material that works against what you already believe. And... I think that a fallback for many readers has been to look more to mainstream media rather than choosing an outlet that's the polar opposite of what they may believe, look for news that doesn't seem to be taking one side or another explicitly, though We all know that a completely objective representation of any complicated story is a fantasy. Do I think that it's a good idea for people to challenge themselves by reading 
news that is diametrically opposed from their beliefs. I'd love to say yes, but my concern is it will just make people angry and more certain of their beliefs than they were before. So it does not always have the effect of producing greater empathy or understanding. It can just as frequently produce more irritation and more alienation. So I think just exposing ourselves to points of view that are counter to our own is not the perfect formula for reducing contemporary political divisions. We've been talking with Andrew Elfenbein, University of Minnesota English Department Chair and Professor. His new book is titled The Gist of Reading. Professor Elfenbein, thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. You're very welcome. This has been a real treat. Thank you. Coming up next week, a look at oil, the lifeblood of industrialized countries. It powers our vehicles, produces electricity, is used in many products, and allows us to wage war. But oil consumption also takes an environmental and sometimes a human toll. Coming up next week on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Communication Studies Ph.D. candidate Christian Angelich discusses his research into how our appetite for oil puts us at risk. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for listening to Dialogue Minnesota.